Rejoice and welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? I'm very well, thanks. You? Yeah, very good. Uh, good week. Um, Welsh Music Prize on Wednesday. Brilliant night, yeah. Cracking night. Went to the mixer beforehand and uh, the Triscoll Award uh, was given to three artists who performed there. Rose Hip, Tea House, Los Blancos and Hannah 2K. Great to see them play. Yeah, really engaging acts. They got something about them. Really young kids and uh, yeah, brilliant. Bright future's head. And then at the evening, um, we saw uh, Boyazuga do a, an acoustic set. That was that was great to see. Um, obviously, previous winner. Yeah, uh, I loved the album last year. One Two Kung Fu. Uh, saw him do a great show with uh, Noel Gallagher earlier in the year at Cardiff Castle. You saw him uh, spotting White Denim, I think, wasn't it? Yes, and Davey played with White Denim as well. And then obviously, Adwife, well deserved winners from a, from an amazing shortlist. And you uh, had them down as the winner from the start. Well, I tipped them. Yeah, they really deserved it. They were stood right in front of us when the announcement was made and, yeah, just how happy they were. Yeah, they got a really endearing quality about them. Uh, you could see, like, the sort of stars in their eyes, really. They were that sort of, like, delighted to win it. And, um, yeah, you know, uh, they're so young and yet so bright. And, uh, yeah, a sort of sound that belies their years. And, um, yeah, good luck to them. Very bright future ahead again. Oh, Griff was there as well. And it was like, great to speak to Griff and give him a hug when, when the girls were going up on stage and congratulating him uh, and a fantastic record label, really championing music from, from West Wales and, and particularly music of the Welsh language. Um, great guest today, uh, talking of the Welsh Music Prize. Um, we've got John Rosson on, who founded the uh, the Welsh Music Prize alongside Hugh Stevens, who was the guest in the last episode. And I've known John a long time, or known of John a long time, and thought I knew a lot about him. But he just, he's been everywhere. He's literally Mr. Welsh Music. He is, yeah. Um, just completely bursting with ideas. And yeah, when, uh, it's only when you like start speaking to him, you think, my God, you know, the amount of things he's, he's done really in the Welsh music scene uh, from soon to um, the Welsh Music Prize to even like stuff like Sleeface, you know. Yeah, so a really engaging personality and a brilliant guest. Thank you as ever for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, please feedback if you've got any uh, comments, uh, social media, at Welsh Music Pod on Twitter or Welsh Music Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can email us on welshmusicpodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy. So welcome, John, to the Welsh Music Podcast, and thank you for inviting us up to uh, lovely Thanglochlin. Thank you, guys, for having me on oh. and for coming all this way. Um, so we said, you know, if you're going to talk about Welsh music, you need to talk to John Rostron. But you're English, aren't you? Uh, Derby, I believe? Yes, I'm English. But you know what? I consider myself Welsh now. Is that all right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Will you let me in? Adopted. We'll adopt you, yeah, yeah. Are you both Welsh? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, so can I be Welsh? You can. But yeah, born in Derby moved to Stourbridge when I was four my parents split up um, and then came to Cardiff to study <laughs> also the famous uh, come to Cardiff never leave uh, story yeah well I came to do you know what I came to Cardiff because of music okay but I um, after my A levels I didn't want to go to university I, I didn't think it was for me or something I'm not sure I thought it was for other people and I got a job I was working in a factory making coats and in the day and then I worked in McDonald's at night I loved it but then my friends or quite a few friends had gone to university I'd go and see them and uh, I just loved it was good I was like oh I see right it's good fun right so I applied to a few new universities and um, Cardiff went on my list it was fifth on my you allowed five choices and Cardiff was last but but it was there because of the Mannix oh, right. because I'd been reading I was a big enemy reader and uh, I'd read about the Mannix they were really you know they were the New, but they're really interesting, you know, weren't they, with all of the, yeah. the way they dressed. and the, I didn't really understand politics, but the sloganeering. Yeah. And so I'd put Cardiff down. And um, 
Yeah, I came out the station. I came on the train from uh, Birmingham, and uh, and I walked up St Mary Street, and you've got and you know you've got we've got the castle, you know. And I was like, wow! And it's a beautiful <laughs> sunny day. And I walked up past the castle, past the Hilton, um, which was a job centre at the time. Basically, by the time I got to university, I was sold. I just had such a great walk. <laughs> And that was it. So I think I first remember knowing you through Carl Morris. You're running Plug 2 and later My Kung Fu. But um, did you work in Buzz before then or was it after? Before. I failed university, <laughs> badly. I got into um, the student newspaper, Guy Reith, and that was my world. I loved it. Um, writing and pulling a magazine together. Well, you know, you, you know this world, right? <laughs> yeah, I used to. We, group of us, put together... Uh, using all the Guy Reith equipment, put together a music magazine and distributed it around Cardiff. What was that called? It was called Sour Times. Okay. And Sour Times was based on a Porter's Head song. So the album was just had just come out and we were really into Porter's Head. And so we put this one-off magazine out called Sour Times. And I think like the Radio 1 evening session did a tour or something and they came to the uni... And Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley, somehow, some, anyway, they picked up on this magazine and Tobias, who had been one of the people who worked with us on this, got invited onto the evening session. And so our magazine was featured on the evening Jeez. session. It was so exciting, talking about new music and Cardiff and Wales and other things. Um, and then that inspired us, I think, whenever I finished college. So me and Tobias Peggs, these brilliant people, Susanna Glazer, um, Rob Watkins, who you know. Yeah, photographer. Brilliant photographer. And Neil Cocker, Matt Callanan, loads of people. We put together, um, started putting a listings magazine together called Fine Time. Tobias was doing a, a PhD, I think, and he had a small grant, so he bought the computer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we did it out of a flat, the, the, the room I was renting in Cranbrook Street in Cardiff. And we set up this listings magazine and it was, um, that would have been, 1995 and we were writing about music mostly because that's what drove us but there was all this amazing other stuff there was art and film and poetry and writing and stuff happening in Cardiff and in Wales looking back now I just thought this was what it was always like it's like this is all these amazing things going on obviously now with hindsight I realised there was this was the this was part of like the pre or it was the cool Cymru thing you know and everything that was going you know it's that tricky tag but whatever there was great art and things being made. You were saying about a major influence in you coming to Wales in the first place was the Mannix. And um, it's going to be 20 years coming up of Manic Millennium, uh, an amazing moment in Welsh culture. Um, Super Furry Animals on the Bill, Feeder, Patrick Jones, and also the Scouse band Chuck. Was that your first ever Buzz cover story, Manic Millennium? I think it was, yeah. So we set up this magazine, Fine Time, and then Emma from Buzz magazine, she ran into me in an arcade and asked me if I'd be editor of Buzz. <laughs> so I said, yeah. And I think that was either the issue that I first put together or when I walked in, it was on the wall, like they'd just put it out. So that was my that was my period as editor of Buzz, <laughs> yeah, for a year and a half. Did you go to the gig? I did go to the gig. I uh, <laughs> So I'd become friends with Hugh Stevens, who, yeah, he was 12 or whatever <laughs> it was back then. Um, but I'd met Hugh and he was just starting out as a DJ. And we'd, we'd become friends. I ran into him and uh, I was going to the gig. I had a ticket in the, the pit uh, and he was going as a guest of the Super Furry Animals. So on the way, I don't know whose idea it was, but I sort of went in behind him <laughs> at every gate. We were flashing the tickets, flashing the tickets. And so I got into the box with the, where the Super Furry Animals Amazing. and their gang were hanging out, which was, uh, which was 
I mean, I was just starbound. I bet. <laughs> and loved it. And also, um, we had easy access to alcohol. So we had a, we had a great and night. Not like the rest of the crowd, are you? Uh, <laughs> queues, apparently. Well, I found that out later. Um, yeah, it was an amazing moment, wasn't it? I can't believe that's... What a moment Manic Millennium was. Amazing, yeah. What a moment. All those brilliant bands and what, 65,000 Yeah, people. it was the, I think at the time, it was the biggest indoor, because the roof was shut, uh, arena in Europe at the time. And obviously yeah. we've got used to Millennium Stadium gigs, but that was like the guinea pig. Yeah, I remember James saying, yeah. we're the Manic Street guinea pigs for this. It's the first time, you know. <laughs> so it yeah, was. How, how did it come off? It was amazing. It was amazing. It was because the, the Millennium itself, everyone was worried about the Millennium bug. Um, and, and actually Cardiff was, you know, that night, there was this sort of one side, I was, I was a sort of split personality at that point. I was really, I was an indie boy. That's where I've come from. Bands have been my life. But I had also, in those previous years, really, really into dance music and electronic music. And I was running club nights. So, and that night was that in two halves. It was the, I was in the stadium watching the Furies and the Manics. But then after that, I went to the Ice Rink. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yes. there was like this ridiculous fat boy slim yeah. and Pete Tong and... Judge Jules or some big name who'd been helicoptered around the country to play these really expensive big super clubs um, and that was my night so I my night was Mannix and then I got to the ice rink to watch my god what then. time did you get in that night then I, I think I'm still out <laughs> <laughs> you, you were putting on um, Patang Yang Kipper Bang that sort yes. of time yeah Patang Yang Kipper Bang <laughs> <laughs> were there any sort of plans to have your own night on, on New Year's Eve yes we had a regular um club night I think it was like once a month Patang and Kipper Bang name first content later <laughs> as always um, but it was like, basically it was like a breakbeat night became a sort of big beat night it was brilliant um, a real mess of a night but yeah we were meant to be at the, we were always at the Emporium nightclub for those who remember that and um, a nightclub where you'd get a thousand people in but actually only had a legal capacity of yeah, that was the way back in the 90s, Three, wasn't it? Yeah. 300. No such thing as health and safety um, back then. We didn't know about those things. Like we just did whatever they said. Um, and we got booted out. We were meant to be Millennium Eve. Um, that would have been our regular night. But um, they said, oh, because it's the Millennium, you know, there's, it's going to be the hot ticket in town. So, so, um, so we got asked if we could not be there and they were going to put something 40, 50 quid to get in. Um, and then foolishly at the time, we went, we'll do something on New Year's Day. <laughs> So we set up a night um, for New Year's Day and it was like a fiver to get in. Um, and then we are like, that's a really stupid idea. Nobody goes out on New Year's Day. And they did because what happened on New Year's Eve, loads of people didn't go out to clubs because they're all so yeah. overly priced, right? For those who remember. And our club was rammed on New Year's Day and we were probably still going from the <laughs> night before. And we had a brilliant, it was fiver, I think, to get in or four pounds to get in, thousand people. Um, and um, yeah, we had a brilliant time. Did you uh, frequent the Hippo Club back then? I did, yeah, yeah. I was a real clubber. There's some hilarious videos on the net of the Hippo Club, actually, with not a single drink being consumed, but everyone just absolutely <laughs> buzzing. Yeah. Amazing. yeah, the Hippo was amazing. And the Furries used to go there yep. and they did some nights as, um, in the downstairs bit because you'd have the sort of like the, the real house stuff or sort of more accessible techno upstairs and then downstairs would be a bit more, well, you know, the, the chill out room. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we used to have the chill out room and, um, uh, yeah, and it'd be more the sort of 
some more experimental music downstairs. But the hippo, the hippo was like an incredible place. It's sad for when those things go, but it's also like leaves you with these really special fond memories. Talking of uh, other sort of um, great nostalgia and uh, something that people look back on very fondly is uh, the Pop Factory in um, Porth, <laughs> which you were involved with in the stand. I was, yeah. So um, for those who don't know, the Pop Factory... Um, was an old Corona pop factory, like made bottles of pop, wasn't it, up in Porth. And uh, I had finished Buzz magazine. I'd done about a year and a half then, decided I wanted to do something else. And then I got this call from the pop factory and I'd never been there before. And you go up to the Porth and there's this big old factory. And the day I arrived, they were filming the show. They had, a, they had like a sort of top of the pops type show that was on ITV Wales, maybe? Yeah, I think yeah, it was, think yeah. So. Called the Pop Factory. And it was full of bands. And, I met, and you know, I met the boss, Emir Avin, who'd invited me up and I met Grant Nicholas from Feeder in the stairwell. And it was like, what's going on? Right? And I think they had like Victoria Beckham <laughs> downstairs <laughs> or something. It was like, why is this place? And uh, and I went for this interview in inverted commas with Emir, which involved me taking him to a greasy spoon in Porth and paying because he didn't have any money. <laughs> and then uh, he said, oh, I've got to get back now. I've got to shoot the show. And um, I was like, what was that all about? And um, I got a call a couple of days later saying, Emmy wants to know when you can start. And I was like, to do what? <laughs> <laughs> but I started, I did. And um, I was working, I was basically booking acts for the Pop Factory um, and then other shows they had this they had a show called This Way Up that they were just starting or bringing back um, with Eddie Temple Morris oh I met so Eddie was oh he still is just such an amazing amazing guy real talent and it was it was amazing it was you know I had free reign to try and find them acts that wanted to come because to Porth right from wherever they were and uh, we would make these TV shows and you'd have yeah like um, you'd have like I don't know Idlewild and A and the Libertines we had the Libertines debut Graham Coxon and then you'd also have like McCluskey yeah. next to them um, or Liberty X and it was just <laughs> the darkness it was just crazy it was just brilliant it was brilliant fun and um, and then all of these kids from like the valleys and around there you'd organise buses for them all to come in and mostly they came some of them came for the music but a lot of them came to try and swipe the swipe the beer that we were <laughs> um, giving out and you just make these amazing it was amazing making like TV shows in the valleys that was going out all over the shop did you uh, book Tom Jones? I, did, no, I didn't book Tom Jones so we, we, we had a show with Stuart Cable from the Stereophonics oh, so Cable TV is Cable it? TV and um, so Stuart was uh, in the phonics at the time. Uh, uh, they were sort of coming up to the point. Well, the, f the rest of the band came on at one point because um, they were in the process. They debuted some songs actually from what became just from Jeep, just enough education to, to perform. perform. Yeah, yeah. And then we did a, a Tom Jones special where he came down and we had an, uh, like a show dedicated to him. My role was to stand behind him and like gently tap him on the bum when it was his cue to walk on. Um, uh, yeah, it was amazing. Cable TV was so much fun. It was we, crazy. Like, cause he was, it was like, as you said, that period where, you know, it looked like he was on the way out of the band, yeah, interviewing his bandmates on the show. When Kelly and the other guys came on, there was clearly some strain. And I think like Stuart said to me, his question, like, when we go, going to go away on tour, lads. And Kelly went, well, one of us stops trying to be a TV star. <laughs> like, how amazing was it to work? I loved working on it. It was good fun. And you mentioned it briefly earlier, the plug-in company and record label with, with Carl Morris. Um, Mike Kung Fu was a record label. And you had some great bands on, on their early doors. Um, Soft-hearted scientists, 
Martini Henry rifles, culprit one, and and Keris Matthews. Yeah, you mentioned Carl Morris. Carl Morris was is brilliant. He was someone I'd met and just really responded to. And when I left the pot factory, um, I don't know why. For some reason, I had the idea to set up um, a plugging and press company. Um, well, actually, I think it was because the Welsh Music Foundation had been set up a few years before. And um, they were talking about things all new to me, about like, um, which, well, new to me then and now are my life, which is about um, infrastructure and support for the music sector. So they had come, you know, well, um, Welsh Music Foundation was set up by Hugh and Natasha, who had managed 60 foot dolls. And it comes from this sort of place of saying, like when they were doing 60 with Dolls, why do we have to do everything in London? Why is the lawyer in London? Why is the record label in London? And they'd questioned that and secured some money to set up an organisation to try and help change that. But they were saying things, yeah, so they were talking about things like press companies and plugging companies and why they're all in London. So maybe somewhere in that was like, yeah, why don't I set up a plugging company and a press company? And I, I have no reason why I knew Carl a bit. He wasn't looking, we weren't best mates. He wasn't asking for a job. I think he had a good job, but I remember calling him and saying, do you want to set up a plugging and press company? And he said, yes. And we did. And at that time I was running club nights and DJing. So I was across a lot of bands and meeting lots of bands. And it just felt like, oh yeah, I can, I can help them. Like we can help them because I know how to write and I know what a press release looks like. And I mean, on the other end of it, we can send them out. So that was kind of where it came from. Um, let's try and help all these bands that we love from Wales um, try and reach people and let's try and do what the Welsh Music Foundation are talking about which is um, and they were really helpful as well in giving us like business support and telling us how things work so that you know we can sort of do that and somewhere along the way what happens is you discover it, loads of people are sending you tapes and demos and CDs tapes oh my god and uh, yeah then you start getting stuff which is brilliant and they're not even ready for a plug or press a, a plug-in company or a press company because they haven't even got a record out and soft-hearted scientists are a great example of that like we got those demos and it's like this is amazing we've got to meet these guys and called a friend john clee who sadly passed away and john was a big big influence on me and uh, like i definitely wouldn't be into all the great music that i am without John's influence but John I called him and said he was a designer and I called him and said I've got you know you've got to hear these tracks and me and him went to see Nathan who was soft-hearted scientist and uh, we heard even more demos and the next thing we know we're setting up me and Carl and John are like let's set up a record label and put them out so we've got something to press and something to plug that's how my kung fu was born yeah we worked with camera from north wales who were amazing and richard james had um just done a solo record which was um uh, going to be through booby trap hugh stevens and baz's label for some reason they were going to stop that label so we did that yeah weird moment where we met keris matthews um she was back from america and um for some reason she was we were talking to her and she we put out her first welsh language ep if you think about carl you know carl morris yeah like that's how amazing carl morris is is that so keris would call and he would answer the phone and at some point he's like i sh i want to answer the phone to her in welsh so he started learning welsh then and that is um he is now like i mean now he only tweets in Welsh. Yeah, at some point didn't he run a website to critique S4C for its Welsh? That's how. That's how. <laughs> that's how clever a man uh, he is. But um, but it was a lot of fun to um, to be in a, in a position putting people's records out. Um, so you founded soon uh, the award-winning multi-venue uh, music festival with your mate uh, and best man at your wedding, I understand, uh, Hugh Stevens, <laughs> uh, the BBC uh, radio broadcaster, uh, in two thousand and seven. Um, 
How did that all come about then? Um, a bit like everything else that I'd, I'd done until more recently where I think about things. Just <laughs> sort of like you have a conversation. Me here at South by Southwest is what I, I remember. It's an amazing festival. Sunny Austrian, Austrian? Oh, sunny Austin streets. Um, amazing bands. And going, why don't we do this in Cardiff? <laughs> That's kind of like where it comes from. We've got great bands and, you know, it came from a desire of like, we've got great bands, but not enough stuff happens here. Like we want it to be, we want more to happen and we want it to be on our doorstep. So that, that sort of desire to show everybody what you think is brilliant. So we loved the music from Wales, obviously. You know, me and Hugh have been friends, yeah, for 20 something years and where we found each other was music, you know, and that's what we are passionate, both passionate about. That's what we talk about more than anything else. And you want to share that with loads of people and you want more people to discover it and be a part of it. And then you, and that's the starting point. And then you start to think practically, God, it's quite flat so people can get around and it's got this venue and it's got that venue. And then before we know it, we've decided to do it and it's four months away and we're, we're on, the, on the way. And when you've got someone like Hugh, you know, Hugh is um, such a, a bundle of energy and ideas and excitement. Like he just is like a... Uh, you know, bottle with the cork off. He's away, right? Um, but also at that time, I knew nothing about um, the live side of things. I didn't know agents or any of, you know, managers. I didn't know all that side of stuff. So Hugh, but Hugh did know some of those people. So he could start asking some people like, oh, would such and such play or would they come here? And then of course, Hugh being Hugh, he can, he could sort of announce something was going to happen and it was going to, it was going to happen. So it was sort of almost like that. It's like we announced it was going to happen and then we, we, we made it happen afterwards. Yeah, I think it really came from, remember when Radio 1 came to Cardiff in the year 2000? Yeah. Uh, Radio 1 Live, was it called then? It was a Coldplay, I think, headliner, was it? Was that the one? Yeah, yeah, Coldplay played the Great Hall and they were like the hot new band and left field. And, but the, the thing about the Radio 1 event was there was their event, which was the, the big concerts, the Coldplays and so on, it was ticketed. But then they... I'm not sure what they did exactly, but they were involved in funding or uh, a fringe, which was um, across the city for like maybe one night, certainly one night. There was loads of bands playing in all kinds of bars across. Yeah, I remember, um, yeah, I remember seeing Gweno in the Duke of Wellington pub on the, on the haze. <laughs> it's her and her keyboard. Yeah, and uh, Small Victories in... Oh, I can't remember what it was called at the end of... Sam's Bar, is it? Sam's Bar. Yeah. And there was Mountain Men Anonymous played in like Bar Cuba, which was... This under there was all of these like bands playing across the city in not even music venues because none of these people, places we're talking about were music venues. There were pubs and stuff, right? And there was loads of people out because it was Radio 1. Uh, I was involved in organising The Fringe only because I was editor of Buzz. So we, we'd written the sort of um, programme for it. But I just remember going out that night or, or those nights and just like going to watch all these new bands in bars um, where there was loads of people, right? Loads and loads of people. Um, and I think somewhere, and Hugh had obviously been heavily involved in that as well. And loads of people in the music community, it'd been like a real big moment. Um, and I think soon was, I know it was seven years later, but it was like a, I think, Cardiff or we or whoever everybody had been waiting we'd really wanted to do that again but you need someone to do it and um yeah obviously there wasn't a anyone to do it was it was it so somewhere I think that's where we'd wanted to recreate that because it was such a great just took us seven years 
<laughs> you also put uh, gigs on under the soon name. Um, was yeah. Adele at Buffalo one of those? Yeah, we put Adele on in Buffalo Bar to about 60 people. Jeez. But those gigs, so they weren't, weren't under the name soon. So actually the... We, they, they come from, there's a, an, an amazing guy called Carl Eilert and um, Carl was a designer, uh, unemployed designer, just finished college in Newport um, and but get like John Clee, probably one of the other people in my life, again, without his influence, I would have really bad music taste um, and uh, we were doing the plugging in the press and Carl was kicking around and... I just said to him, like, why don't you come in and try and book some gigs? And um, he started booking gigs and he was a designer. So he made these amazing flyers on see-through tracing paper and brown card and like they were gorgeous. And he did it under the name or we did it under the name. It was his, his thing under the name Forecast. And um, by chance, we also got some work. We were trying to help market the Point venue, the old church yeah, in the yeah, Bay. Yeah. Um, but actually once we started we, there was nothing to market because there was actually no gigs going on so so that was a place that Carl was using a lot um, to put shows on and um, he booked this is how you know he booked Fortet and Caribou and Black Mountain and Mogwai and Lightning Dust and Y and Lightning Bolt Devendra Banhart Ariel Pink Grizzly Bear Grouper I've got a massive list Broadcast the fall, <laughs> you know, um, he booked these amazing bands and some of these bands like Grizzly Bear, you know, playing to 20 people, Grouper played to one person, Ariel Pink, you know, Phosphorescent played to 20 people, but like they're, they're, they're brilliant artists, right? And, and have since been proven and to be brilliant artists and grown. And, um, that was all Carl Eilert and uh, we were doing, we were doing that as a company, but it was all through Carl and Carl's aesthetic and his, his ears were just incredible. Um, but yeah, somewhere in that, he was meeting agents and that was the precursor as well. Like it was really handy that that formed the basis for soon because we were starting to get, I was beginning to learn how to put concerts on um, through doing that. Um, but he was the one meeting agents um, and understanding how that worked. And that was really important. And then, yeah, one of the agents got in touch with him and said, um, I've got this artist Um She's really new. Her father or estranged father or someone lives in Panath. Would you like to put her on? And it was Adele. And, you know, and it was definitely not Carl's thing normally, like a list of artists I've just given you, Adele. Yeah, exactly, didn't really add up. <laughs> Doesn't add up in that way. But but you listen to it. And he's like, look, she's got this, you know, she's got a great, we loved her voice. And who knows? You know, you don't know if we'd book Marissa Nadler or me and Lau, you don't know if they're going to be the next Adele, so to speak. And, we, and so he booked Adele. So I think Adele was, I think possibly done as a forecast show. Oh, uh, okay. And yeah, that was a couple of weeks then actually before the first, the first soon festival. Another venture you had with Carl, um, I don't know whether uh, stumbled across is the right word to use, but it went absolutely <laughs> viral, is um, Sleeface in 2008. Um, seemed to start with you just sort of messing around uh, with a vinyl cover of McCartney, uh, McCartney's album, McCartney 2, was that right? That's right, yeah, so that's Carl Morris, two Carls <laughs> in my life that I can think of. Yeah, we were DJing a Buffalo Bar. Um, Buffalo Bar was notorious at the time for not having any equipment 
<laughs> or like being really unreliable. So either we'd known or not known, but we turned up and we, we couldn't play CDs, um, which uh, for our younger listeners at the time were the thing. Um, but we, we were big vinyl junkies, so we had loads of records. And we were playing to like no one. So Carl um, started holding the record sleeves in front of his face where some of the pictures, you know, the, like you said, the McCartney one was a classic where you got big picture of Paul McCartney. He said, put it in front of his face and pretend to be Paul McCartney and sit at the table, have a drink. And I was taking pictures on my, my phone, which would have been a Blackberry at the time. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and we did that to pass. It was good fun. We passed away the night. And then the next day we're working together then, you see, doing the record label and plug in and, and, um, uh, I'm looking at the photos and I was good fun that thing last night wasn't it look at that and he went oh yeah and Carl is a genius Carl was like yeah I've, th- I've been thinking about that um, and overnight he'd written he'd come up with a name Sleeve Face we've got to call it Sleeve Face and he'd written a description and like a, a dictionary definition of what Sleeve Face was which, which is still the definition it's incredible and I was like that's brilliant and um, and uh, I Facebook <laughs> God, this sounds so old, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you know Facebook? Facebook at the time was new. It was just coming in. So um, so it's not something I would do now. Yeah. Um, but I was like, let's put them on Facebook. And that was, that was all my role in it really was to nudge him. So let's put it on Facebook. And so we set up a little Facebook group and we put some on Facebook. And I think maybe we, we put them as our profile pictures. And at that point that stuff was noticed, you know, like, uh, because everybody, your friends were arriving on Facebook. So their first encounter might be the look for their friends. And then when they find John or Carl or whoever else, um, they had sleeve face pictures there and they'd join our sleeve face group. And that was sort of that for a while. Um, we loved it. We, we organized a few little parties with our friends. We get all that. I had a big record collection and Carl had a massive record collection. We get our sleeves out and take pictures and add them to the group. And that was that. And then a year passed and the Guardian, unbeknownst to us, ran their end of year review, you know, film of the year, book of the year, Facebook group of the year or something. <laughs> and, and, and it's sleeve face. It's probably the first and only time they've run this thing. Yeah. And, um, wow right so our Facebook group goes nuts and we're getting all these messages and um, we're like wow in the Guardian you know um, but that was just the open the gates in the next two months like all the national newspapers were in touch and they were all running spreads on it and um, we got a book deal and uh, Carl got to go on this morning <laughs> um, we all went down but um, for the day but Carl was the one who went on the show um, and uh, it was amazing. It was just like living in a bubble for a couple of months. You mentioned earlier about sort of announcing something in order to make it happen. And I guess that kind of happened with the Welsh Music Prize. Obviously the nominations for um, for this year's one's out tomorrow. But I, at the time I remember the announcement of the Welsh Music Prize happening like three weeks before <laughs> it was due to sort of happen. Is that, is, that, is that what happened with it? Probably. Yeah, the first one was in 2011. I mean, I know that something, I know that we'd, um, you know, soon was on its fifth edition. So we were deeply embedded then. I know the 2011, so soon was really, we were in a groove then and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger doesn't always mean better which is definitely something that I learned on the way, but it was, it was just going with its, 
it was all coming from the people and it was all coming from the bands and it was all, it was all, you're just trying to be a conduit for it. So it was in a really great place. But that year also we'd um, received some money from the Welsh government from this major events unit, which was this new initiative to support major events. So we were in a, financially it was like, oh, there's um, some new support coming in. And I think that mixed with the momentum that we had and then I'm not sure. We just had a conversation. I, I remember having a bugbear about the Mercury Prize um, nominations had come out at some point and I just, maybe we'd had a conversation where I'd said, look, there's been 250 albums nominated since the Mercury began and only one of them has been Welsh. Which, which album was it? <laughs> that is a question, isn't it? Uh, which album? You've, you've got a you've got a stub. Super fairy animals uh, rings around the world. Okay, right. So I think it'd been the o- one, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I think it'd been the only album, Welsh album, nominated. I think. So any, but you know, so with one album out of two hundred and fifty, I so I think I'd been moaning about this or whatever, and then somewhere from that, maybe Hugh or me had said, "Let's do our own. Let's do the Welsh Music Prize because, like all the other things, it's like there's loads of great albums and we love them, and that was it. So we just said. Yeah, we probably did that. We probably just announced that we were going to do it. Uh, I can't even remember how. We must have got some jurors together somehow um, to vote um, uh, for for 12, you know, to say what their favourite albums were. And um, and then, yeah, however long, three weeks later in the Cuckoo Club. <laughs> you remember that? Um, you know, with everybody squeezed in. And, I, yeah, and, um, and it was brilliant. You know, we had... Um, Griff Reese won for Hotel Shampoo. But um, I was looking at the list, actually, thinking about like that first year. There's like Colour Armour, uh, Sweet Baboo, Joy Formidable, Al Lewis, Clayton, Funeral for a Friend, and Mannix. Um, so it was like, we were like, that's a great list. You know, that's a really exciting um, list. And all the acts came. I think Joy Formidable were on tour, so they couldn't come. Um, and yeah, it was great just getting a, I think whatever the Cuckoo Club hold was like a hundred people and having, that was the thing that was really exciting about it. You get um, the, when you share the, the list and this happens every year now. So when you share the list of nominations, you have like a, you, you might have a big act like the Mannix next to an emerging act. Like I remember the year it was Mannix and Samoans on the, you know, and yeah. for the Mannix, it must be, in, I would hope it's great for your work to be recognised in that level. You know, it's not about sales, it's about your writing to be 20 something years into a career, 30 years into a career. And then if you're a band like Samoans, I can remember those guys being so excited to be next to their heroes for the same, and it's level It's probably the same with Boys Uger and the Manic last year because Resistance's Futile was nominated last year. Yeah, Yeah, and that must be um, amazing, right? And you've got equal chance of winning because it's not about sales or anything. It's not a public vote. It's about a group of critics then who are sort of, or different people who will decide. That must be, that must be great. And then the moment when you get everyone in a room, one of the things that we've also found is um, we, loads of people, everybody in the music industry or the music ecosystem, we all know each other and we knock around, but, and you have little conversations in cafes like this or pubs, but like getting loads of people in a room where you're all there to like put down any differences you might have and you might work in different genres and you might be in the, uh, the industry side and you might be in the community music side and you might be in the classical side, but you just, all that society, one night you're just all focused on the love of music is great. 
Like, and we realised that didn't happen. And that was one of the unintended, yeah, it happened in the first night in the Cuckoo Club. We we're like, this is great. This is great. Like, everyone's just knocking around. Um, and that's a big reason that we do it. You mentioned the Welsh Music Foundation earlier. You, you then become chief executive of that. I did. Yes. Everything I had actually been doing, plugging, playing records to people, um, booking acts in the pop factory, writing about bands in fine time, plugging and press, putting out a record label, running a festival, putting on gigs. All of those things have actually been about wanting people to hear music that I love or for people to come and see music and meet bands that are just starting out and new and haven't got an audience yet, you know, like to try and pull people in to be a part of their journey, you know, soon is, was you know, is, is not just about like, come and see bands in bars that you've never heard of, you know, come and be their fan, come and buy, buy their t-shirt, but it's also come to this country that I love or that I am part of now. Like, I, I guess somewhere in it, I walked in as a 19-year-old and I had no, no idea about Wales, which is nuts, right? I lived an hour and a half away in Birmingham. So uh, it's the opposite way around it. Like, this is an amazing place. Come and, come and see it. Come and be part of it. Come and, come and give it money. Because uh, when I arrived, there was, it was poor and there was three doll centres on my walk. To, to the university and then somewhere but it's always been about doing doing it like so come to the gig read the press release buy the record Welsh Music Foundation was something else this was about um, you have a role where you support all these other people that are doing all of these things their record labels and managers and promoters and factories in music or whatever publishers um, you can, you can support all these people who, who are like a, a million versions of me and doing things that are a million times better than me. And your job is to help them do it. But also you're talking to government and councils and you're trying to change policy to make, the, make their environment better. And it's like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I just, that's really what, all the things I've been up to now is just about that, trying to help people. So, so I really wanted that job because I was like, this is how you can change things. Because actually putting on a gig is really hard, right? <laughs> Trying to set up a little record label to put out a band you love is really difficult and it costs you money and it's really hard. So, so um, can I be on the other side to try and help make their space better? Can I make it more sustainable? Can I change somebody higher up the chain's um, mind so they can open up funding or they can open up spaces or whatever? So the Welsh Music Foundation to me had been doing that brilliantly for... Uh, a decade and I'd been on the board uh, in the years before that so I'd got to see that closer I, I'd been on a journey with Marsh, you know I'd, with Marshall Music Foundation originally I'd been someone they'd come to f see and they'd been a, they'd supported me they told me what these things press and plugging were and they told me what South by Southwest was and they helped me and then I'd been on the board and I'd seen really closely how hard it was and what good work they did. And then it was like yeah, an opportunity to lead it. And, um, and at the time I thought that's, that was going to be the, that's what I was going to do. And um, that's why I wanted to do it. That was a long answer, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you, you said there about uh, working with councils and you're currently working with uh, Cardiff Council on um, the sound diplomacy uh, for the Music City um, ambition. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about that? When you're trying to do things like soon and you're trying to put on a festival, you're trying to bring people to come and see shows. And then you see all the venues, whether they're there, you know, they're, they're gone or, or they're here now, but you know, the Dempsey's and the Liz at the moon and 
the goody who's and the guys at 10 feet and undertone and buffalo and all of these brilliant people you just know how hard it is for them and one of the great one of the many things that could make their lives better would be a local authority that that gets what they do or begins to get what they do and can make things better for them and um, the music strategy was a bit about right time right place I'd long thought there should be some change within the council um, and I'd thought like a music strategy would be one way to do it. But that was falling on deaf ears, um, understandably perhaps, you know. But then we had this series of closures of venues, didn't we, in Cardiff that one spring. Yeah. Dempsey's closed or became the Gareth Bale Burger Bar. <laughs> um, Wombie Street, Guildhall Crescent. Yeah, so... You know, there was these brilliant people save Wunderby Street campaign and then you've got the clubby fullbacks and the moons and the people who are doing it. And then all the punters shouting like, we want music, we want music. And then I think also a bit of luck. There was a council election coming up and um, it was a good hook for politicians to hang their coat on or their hat on, whatever the term is. And I think a general election. Weirdly, in that difficult moment, that created an opportunity for something to come through and that, that voice asking for music strategy was heard. And, um, and the council actually, they went above and beyond. They commissioned a music strategy and spent £75,000 engaging a company, you know, the, the world's best company to, to, to do that. Sound Diplomacy who hired me as a, you know, somebody on the ground that knew Wales and knew Cardiff. And we just met loads and loads and loads of people, hundreds of people and asked them, what do they want? What's the problems? What do you need? And you hear these amazing raft of stories. You know, we want, um, we want our licenses to be more relaxed. We want to be able to get younger people in. We want better transport links. We want our shows to be marketed better. We want less pressures on running our spaces, whatever it happened to be. We want some funding, whatever, you know, whatever. And all of that has gone into that massive hundred page document. <laughs> that's now been accepted by Cardiff Council and they're, I don't know where they're at now, but they're going to start to implement those recommendations. So my work is done. And my work was mostly, you know, weirdly, if you hang around long enough, I've been here 20 years, you just, you know, my, I was hired because I know lots of people just because I've, I mean, I've just been around, right? And that's what they, you know, sound diplomacy, have all the expertise. My job was to keep saying, you need to meet this person, you need to meet that person and trying to bring all those people together and, and then trying to help their voices be heard. And you've recently been appointed uh, manager of the Welsh division of Making Music. Yeah, so I do a day and a half a week for Making Music. Um, I'm the Wales manager, thank you, which sounds very like a football... Yeah, gigsy. Gigsy role, thank you guys. And uh, we used to talk about the industry quite a lot. And music isn't... Uh, there is an industry. There is a, a motor point arena and there's a 15,000 cap arena coming to Cardiff, right? And those things are an industry, you know, like... Um, 7,000 tickets at 40 pounds a head. You know, that's a business and it's run by Live Nation um, and Spotify is a business and we know all that. But actually music is loads more than that. And when I, we were doing the round tables and listening to whoever was talking, um, the things that I was hearing, the subtext that I was hearing is that community music, music education and leisure time music are the most valuable things that we have going on. And they're actually... These are where somebody is first offered a piano because they're on the dole. Griff Reese is a great example. You know, he went to a, he was on the dole or something and he went to do something because you have to do something because you're on the dole and he was banging a drum kit and he met Dav or something. It was something like that's how they, that's how they formed, right? You know, it's, it's the first time you offered a piano or, you know, like the first time you might go and see a band or participate in a school gig or, 
all of these things are happening and they're through leisure time groups or community music groups or music education. And yet that is the stuff that there's no money in it. It's not, it's not the music industry in inverted commas and it's not, but it's not supported either. It's um, the industry in inverted commas doesn't support it financially. And then in times of austerity or other things, it's the provision that gets cut by councils. It's not statutory provision. And yet it's so important. It's not just important for the music industry, but it's important for your health and your well-being or your, if you're a young person, it's your resilience or your skills or your ability to express yourself in your language. You know, um, look at the amazing work in Welsh language music. It's about, um, you know, kids engaging in the language through music, singing songs and beginning to know that that's okay and that they can feel cool and feel accepted and feel a part of it. And, you know, music such a, plays such a vital role. There's no industry in that. Yeah, for me, um, leisure time music. And that and leisure time music is choirs of like 50, 60 people or classical quartets or brass bands. It's a whole raft of things. So people who have all other kinds of jobs, but this is where they go for all different kinds of reasons. They, they, they go there for community. They go there to meet people. I live in a rural area now, you know, so these things, they have a really important role to play in terms of bringing people together just within the community. And also with Leisure Time Music, I've learned so much, like a boy Azuga or a buzzard, buzzard, buzzard may or may not come and go, you know, so many bands that I've loved have, you know, they might last a few years or 10 years, but they come and go. But leisure time groups last pretty much forever. <laughs> Your local choir, yeah. it lasts a lot longer than you, you know, they're always there. So they're really interesting propositions. Yeah. So for me, as I was coming out the music strategy and I'd left all my life as a promoter and a festival promoter behind, I was thinking what next is I want to go into one of those and the opportunity of making music came up and uh, they accepted me. So I'm the current manager for Wales, see how the results are. <laughs> and I'm really enjoying it. It's brilliant meeting loads of a whole sector that I, I hope I've explained it but a whole sector I didn't know before yeah and there's um thousands and thousands of people out there doing great things well thank you John usually at this time we I say usually we've only had two episodes so far um we ask the guest to nominate their favorite album by a Welsh artist and, and induct it into the Welsh Music Hall of Fame um what's, what's your choice my choice is Kate Bon. Uh, me oh my, her debut album, a second, a oh, third debut album after Dave Owens choosing the Sixty Foot Dolls, Big Three, and Patrick Jones talking through about Alarm's Declaration. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting thread. Actually, um, we were talking about um, mm. it being the absolute essence of an act, you know, and them being there the most exciting. Would you agree with that? Oh, so I'm the third person you've interviewed, and the two have. So we've all said debut chosen albums. debut albums. That is really, really interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah, a debut album sounds like the start of something, which which it is. Kate LeBron is on her fifth album. Yeah, no? reward. Reward. Yeah. So it is if you're. It is like in that way the start. But for me personally, or whatever, I think generally with artists, actually the the debut album is the kind of like not the end, but it is, yeah, it's like you've been on a long journey quite often to get to that point, right? Yeah, most people are seen as like overnight successes, but um, yeah, they, no. they very rarely happens. No. So I love new music. Is that a thing? I don't know. But I, I, I've, I've come to realise that the thing that I love the most is new music. And I think, you know, ref like this is like reflect, this is quite a strange experience because you're sort of <laughs> reflecting on your life. Um, like I'm at the end. But yeah, I think I've realised that actually what I'm interested in is helping and being around bands or artists as they're starting out, right? As you're getting demos and they're figuring things out. And a lot of the stuff that I've done has been around that 
right? Around um, writing about them or putting their gigs on or putting, trying to put them on to introduce them to people. Because I, you, you've heard a song or two songs or something and you just really like them, right? Um, and right back to pop scene and the first club nights I did as I was coming out of uni, you know, once you start on the stage and you're playing the Beatles records and Oasis records and the stuff that I did, people would come and give you CDs and they'd be like, would you play my demo? You know, and you would go home and you'd listen to them and, and then you would play a, a watershed um, track in the middle of the night and you would clear the floor, right? <laughs> But you were like, I love this band. I love this band. And Watershed actually is a great example. Uh, you know, look, they never released an album. They never got to that point. They were around for quite a long time. They never got to that point. So that is the stuff that, um, that's the stuff that really interests me. So Kate's records, Kate's album is a bit of that really. I'd been on a, a journey with a, like Kat Ramasut, who was um, a friend who had met, but was also sort of managing and helping out, trying to like pass these demos. And I knew Kate from, I don't know where, I think. Europa? From you, yes, definitely from Europa Cafe. Which is like an incredible sort of uh, source of Welsh talent. I think um, Sweet Baboo, Steve worked there. Ellis James, a comedian. Gemma Ropa, who was in Samuel Hung. Yeah. Um, H. Hall Klein Hugh. Yeah. Um, and we talked in the first episode with um, Dave Owens about, you know, we, we, we maybe need some sort of like equivalent of, of the blue plaque in the Welsh music industry, um, in inverted commas. And maybe the Europa's something that needs a, a blue plaque. Obviously, the hard lines guys tried to, to resurrect it, but what a great scene that was. Yeah, Europa was, again, like, yeah, Europa, that cafe, all the people who were working there. Sky Barkers came from there uh, as well. Um, but yeah, like tiny little place, top of Womanby Street, just on the corner. I don't know, it's just all closed now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But all those artists who were they, were, they were working there because they needed money, right? They were selling pastries and coffees. It was tiny, only held about 20 people. Um, Carl Ryler, who I talked about earlier, you know, him and Hugh Evans, who H. Hawkline started DJing 45s together, this thing called Dig, playing psych records and bringing Andy Vettel down. And it was, yeah, that hub. I remember that Europa for the first soon. Yeah. We put Axon in there. I think Mailer might have played there as racehorses, but Gareth Bonello definitely played there because uh, there's some footage I've seen of that. And then on the last night, on the Sunday, Hugh Evans, H. Hawkline being Hugh, had come up with the name Dim Soon, scrawled it on the blackboard outside, right? And I was like, what does that mean? Because I didn't, I didn't know Welsh. He's like, it means no soon. I was like, what? And they were having a party to celebrate the end of soon where they, they all played records and him and Kate and Gemma. Yeah, and, you know, it was wild. Um, that was all of its time, right? That was all just that, that wonderful moment. And Kate, yeah, we, I knew Kate from that. Kate was really supportive. So she played, I think she played every soon while she was living in, in Wales. Um, I remember we did a launch once at the Reardon Smith and she came and played songs for us. And we, it was all about that. She was amazing, right? She is amazing. Um, this raw talent. And um, like we just, from my perspective anyway, just wanted people to hear her, hear her, listen to it, buy it, get it. She's going to be huge. And of course, yeah, it takes a long time. But eventually, you know, it's lovely if you're sort of proven. Just thought she was amazing. Had met her out and about through all of that Cardiff community and knocking about. She's such a energy her and Hugh you know when they were in Europa were like just such a bundle of like everything they they were the people who dragged 
me and Hugh Stevens to Goody Who because they were involved. They started to work there and Hugh Evans was always like, you've got to put a gig on in the back garden. And, you know, that was all coming from him and from coming from Kate. But then, of course, at the heart of it is, you know, these records, these songs that she's making. And, well, there were demos, weren't they? Um, what I remember is there was demos. I remember she played loads of shows. I remember, you know, Carl would put her on at Forecast. There's a girl, Fiona Allen, who's in Australia now. Her and John were running a night called Beyond the Pines or In the Pines doing like sort of folky stuff and she'd play there and and then an album arrives somehow I think I got a I think Kat gave me a a, like a rough copy of it or something now I don't know if this is I can't remember if this is right or not I'm just going to say it is and maybe somebody listening correct me but I think that Me Oh My was recorded once so it was recorded with Chrissy Jenkins in um, the Douglas buildings uh, in the bay and then I think it was Scrap. And then I think she re-recorded it, but with a different voice. That's what I re- oh. vaguely remember hearing. What I remember is that she was quite, it was her and a guitar and it was quite, you know, it was obviously stripped down and it was quite gentle. And she, but she had this incredible voice, but it didn't have that sort of pronunciation and sound that, that on this first record, there was a lot of comparisons to Nico, like, yeah. um, like an effect, right? And what I remember for some early show is that that wasn't there. But she was, there was a folk scene thing going on with Richard James coming out of Gorky's doing a brilliant folk record, Gareth Bonello and other people. But then also through the forecast nights, Carl Rylett was bringing in the Me and Lowes and Marissa Nadler's and Devendra Banhart's and these kind of people from America and, uh, and elsewhere. Green Man was just starting. Joe and Danny had started Green Man, but they were bringing... Um, they were into like, they were folk musicians, right? But they were also really into partying or something. <laughs> so the early Green Mans were like, you, you know, with the very early, were, you know, there'd be Fortet playing or Beth Orton next to the earlies, right? So you had this kind of strange stew. And I think that Andy Vertel, in some ways, who ran Twisted Nerve and he was sort of a part of this blurring between folk and psych and something. And somewhere in all of that period and that, Again, right time, right place. I think that was part uh, of Kate's journey from folk to what to the beginnings of what you hear on this record. And the way I like to remember it, and I've probably then got it completely wrong, and I'm, it's just in my mind, is that she sort of recorded it as a folk singer, but then presented it as this this sound. And I just think that's one of the things that adds to it. I mean, it's an I think it's an incredible record, but there's something about the delivery. Oh, yeah, the intonation. Of intonation of, the, yeah, of a voice. I, I think as well, you, you, you were saying about it being a folk album, and it, and it certainly struck me as having that sort of real sort of earthiness of a folk album. Um, there's the odd little sort of imperfections with it where you'll hear like um, the odd bum note, the odd sort of whistle of a fret or yeah. a, bit, a tiny bit of discorded rec- um, recorder, and it's on the record. But that is what makes it so sort of natural and sort of magical, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's earthy. It's um, quite a dark record, I guess. You know, it starts in the dark, doesn't it? And then the second song, she's like waking up to daylight, but then there's also darkness around. <laughs> there's an ongoing theme, but but this also feels quite earthy, homely. It feels quite safe because it's not, it is quite simple. There's a couple of bigger sort of songs on there, but it's only when you move on to her second record that she begins to sort of move into the television sound and she moves she moves off and her records are definitely I mean I love all of her albums but you can hear huge developments afterwards yeah. but this one just feels like uh, in some ways it sits slightly alone if, you, if, if you're looking at the whole album I think this one sits alone I think if you when you look if you go on YouTube and you see some perf- early performances where she's somewhere she's singing with Minnie from Texas Radio Band mm-hmm. singing Mars Mars and there's a, a, another Welsh language song about the night is it a Newell in the night or Noir Noir and um, 
yeah like they all fit together with this record really well yeah it seems to be a sort of recurring theme throughout the album I think like the first line of the album is um, I fought the light um, I fought the night and the night fought me um, and I read in an early interview where she said she only writes in the dark I don't know if that's the case anymore but it, it certainly adds to the sort of bewitching sort of magic of it yeah definitely doesn't seem like it's really about anything in particular but it's definitely coloured by dark and it's like slightly on edge everything's a bit sort of tense like um, I think she's on a train and it's full and um, everything's sort of like you know the light's breaking but there's fear on the horizon so you're always kind of like slightly on edge and her voice because of for me anyway like could have been delivered as a sort of folk album but then it's not she's got this sort of there's like some wonderful play you know which I rock the beat and I don't rock time and, and it's just the way she plays with the words but there's also keeping you there's a comfort in the discomfort. I'm going to say it's quite a sort of a soothing sounding record, but yeah. underneath that, there's um, like a sort of recurring the- uh, theme of um, mortality. Obviously, the yeah. um, provisional title was Pet Deaths, about her mourning <laughs> beloved um, family pets. And, yeah. um, you know, if you only got to look at the song titles, mortality it features throughout um, Burning Till the End and Digging Song. Pet Deaths, I'd forgotten that. Um, you never know like at the time because you you know I know that Hugh Evans well I mentioned you know they were um, partners at the time and he's I can imagine him having a hand in some of the things he did the artwork for the album he did do the artwork for the album yes and um, and my copies are yeah when they put it out it was only on CD or it certainly wasn't on vinyl and then um, a couple of years ago they pressed it on vinyl but only in well I got mine from America so it must have been an American label um, and Hugh had done new artwork for it then, which is quite different. But yeah, I think he had a hand. I can imagine things like Pet, you know, being, um, being uh, maybe being his influence or not, I'm not sure. I think he had a hand in her name, didn't he? I yeah, think. Uh, wasn't it um, to do with her saying she liked Simon Le Bon, I think, wasn't it? And then it was, it? Yeah, it was like a sort of joke then that she was referred to as Kate Le Bon. I, th- I think I got that right, haven't yeah, I? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, talking of um, another artist who was very sort of influential in early career, um, so I kind of sort of plucked her from sort of relative obscurity I suppose is uh, Griff Rees. Um, mm. I think he saw her live around 2007 and was sort of a similar sort of reaction to yourself, really. Yeah, sort of blown away by it. And um, asked her to support him on his um, solo tour. Yeah, and, and Kate was managed through that first record by Kat, who is um, Griff's partner. So there would have been, that's if you found an artist, I don't know which way it went, whether Griff went Kat, because Kat wasn't a manager. I mean, she doesn't manage anybody else and she hasn't since, as far as I know. She makes uh, films and makes TV. But she's a music at heart, you know. I first met Kat, she used to work on the the, the evening session. It wasn't called the evening, BBC evening session in Wales with, with Hugh and Beth. And yes, yep. She um, worked as a producer on that. So, yeah, I wonder, I not, never asked actually which way that went. Did Griff say, this is brilliant artist, Kate, do you want to be a manager? Or did, did Kat go, Griff? <laughs> well, Griff, well um, yeah, you know, me, me or my became the um, debut release on uh, Griff Reese's um, Irony Board label. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, that, and that's Griff, isn't it? Griff is, um, Griff is like a brilliant advocate for music from Wales and he does you know he's part of that developing he could just go and do what he does and he write his records but he doesn't he champions artists he tries to create makes a record label to put things out maybe maybe he he influences Kat to be a manager yeah I mean I I think Griff definitely saw a bit of himself in her in uh, just the sort of uniqueness and the sort of crazy sound she can conjure Um, obviously I think her uniqueness um, puts her in sort of demand as a um, you know for cameos on other albums so 
Um, she was featured on Neon Neon, I Lost You. She's featured with the Chemical Brothers. And um, she was featured on um, Four Lonely Roads, the Manix record from um, Rewind the Film. Yeah. Another great record with yeah. sort of... Very sort of unique sounds again, really, you know, um, yeah. perfect sort of duet really there. And she's done like her duet on her record, but with Perfume Genius. Yes. It's yep. an amazing song. Um, and I, lo- I love all that. I love the fact that like um, that sort of those relationships start in Wales, you know, like I know Kate, well, I don't know she, where she was living in America and I think maybe back in the UK now, but Perfume Genius, American artist, but you know, like his career began in, through Cardiff and being managed by Turnstile and mm. those relationships being fostered at such an early stage and two incredible talents performing together. And she's done the same with John Grant. I don't think they've, re- have they recorded together, but they've performed together and they swapped Definitely lyrics. Definitely performed live, I know yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, I think like Casey and, and you were Casey and Ewan made the video. Made the video, yeah. You know, and I love, I, that's the stuff that I love. Yeah, like... Um, yeah, you've got Ewan and Casey, two young filmmakers who were in Cardiff. And then you've got John Grant, who's this nobody knew at the time. Um, you know, and then Ewan gets to do his video, but they start making it in Cardiff and they're um, knocking about. And then John's building, John Grant's building a relationship with Cardiff, which, you know, could be anywhere in the world. He's a world-class talent. Um, and, uh, you know, but, you know, that, that sort of beginning to f- foster and happen here, I just think is brilliant. Um, cause it's happening early on. It's, you know, he, those videos were happening when people weren't into him and they didn't know who he was and, you know, he hadn't won all the awards that he's, that he's won now. And then knocking about with people like Kate, and then you see them both moving up their stages at festivals and John sings, um, well, I've seen him sing the Perfume Genius part and I've seen, seen Kate sing with him and it just, I don't know, the fact that Wales has a hand in that, um, maybe I'm, over embellishing the role that Wales has to, but it, it feels fantastic um, to, to, to see it happen. How would you say Me Oh My stands up with the rest of her work? I, I think it stands apart. I really do see it. I can't, for me, as you go through, as you hit Kate's second record onwards and then the collaborations, the things like with Drinks and the record um, she's got with... Um, Bradford Cox from Deer Hunter through yep. the myths through the record you know through Mexican Summer I don't know they, they all feel like each record feels really strong it feels like it's got a strong sound like and each record shifts shifts along in sound like it's not a progression as such it's she's going in different directions I think they're all, they're all great but they move in different ways and then artistically like her aesthetic I mean Kate's even if you go back to the YouTube footage of her with Minnie, you know, even her haircut, even the days when perhaps that's all she could afford, even her haircut is like, boom, it's really striking, right? Um, and now, but now she's got a little bit more and it's in her visual presentation or her videos or whatever. I think it's so strong. Whereas um, on Me Oh My, I think it's still there. That artwork from Hugh is incredible. Her, 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 aesthetic how she's her hair and the egg that she's got and she's really thought about all those things but also it just feels kind of like it still to me feels like something that she could have almost made at home and given to you before she got into the recording industry before labels were involved if you see what I mean it still feels like it's close to her I think um 
when you look at her perform, she's like, I think she's amazing. And I don't know whether it comes naturally or it comes from shyness or it's performance, but like she, she often used to play, like she'd play square on, on the side. She wouldn't stand in the middle, she'd stand at the side and then she wouldn't stand facing the crowd, she'd stand side on. And I used to find that really like even more engaging and I'd be really drawn into the show. Um, she was on Jules Holland recently and if you saw the picture, it got, you know, there's all these people and they're all looking at the camera and she's like slightly, just standing slightly differently. Yeah. <laughs> and she, it's just so much more like, wow. And it feels like from the second record onwards that she's hard to reach to get to if that makes any kind of sense whereas on this record it feels like it's she's inviting you in and it's all like you're around the, and she's like because that's what she's like or she you know I haven't seen her for long that's what she used to be like she was really like come and have a hug come and have a coach come and have a party <laughs> it's definitely the most like introspective album of, of all of them but I think it's still like you know we said it's like you know death of her pets and things mm -hmm. and I guess you could call it a concept album if you wanted to put a label on it and, and most of our albums set, tend to to have a recurring theme in them you know you know mm -hmm. even recently go you know she'll go move away to the Lake District and record you know um, reward <laughs> or write reward sorry and then go over to LA to yeah. to record it in the same you know studio she did the preceding album but mm -hmm. completely different yeah. um yeah but it's just a a fabulous artist and yeah definitely someone who cares about the aesthetic like you say yeah it's so so easy to sort of make comparisons but almost like the welsh kate bush in some respects yeah I, yeah she's she's an artist a true artist whatever that means you know and um everything that she does i think is i just think it's really interesting and um and it's some stuff is immediate and some stuff really isn't but you always get there in the end and you just look at the people who are into her, the other artists that I love that are into her, the people who want to be working with her or next to her or fans of her, you know, because she's not a big selling artist, is she? But she's hugely respected. And it comes from this, she's just got some kind of vision and she's got this incredible talent that that is there on this record and has been there all the way along. And um I love the record and whether, whether I also love it because of all the things that we've sort of talked about that time, like it emerged from that time where for me, um, personally where I was in the middle of, yeah, like some people that I really respect and admired, like John and Carl, who were introducing me to amazing music, surrounded by artists that were amazing, but didn't have followings or stuff yet. Like Kate and um, Hugh Evans and Gareth Bonello and all these sweet baboo and all these amazing people. And this record sort of maybe also encapsulates that time for me. You mentioned that um, there's a lot of uh, comparison to Nico, but she definitely um, explores a more wider range than, than Nico does in, in some of the songs. And that's yeah. definitely been something that she's, she's continued to do over the course of her career. Yeah. And... I think the Nico thing quickly went like it's a, it's um I, I I got it at the time because it came along and it was really striking I think yeah you'd hear it and it and it did sound different not hugely different but enough that's kind of what this record's about you know like it's that edge it's like a slight edge it's just a slight thing but it's an it's like enough and that's maybe also one of the reasons why it's so great she's not trying to force anything but it's it's sure and it's confident and it's strong and it's just that little bit so. Yeah, when you first heard, if you were writing that review, and you got to remember at this point, like no one was getting, no disrespect, no one's getting really excited about the new Kate LeBon record. She's just, you know, she's probably pushing to get help and get press and get reviews and Griff support would have been really helpful in, in terms of that. So she probably would have got really tiny little reviews places. So you're looking for that, the writers writing 100 words or 50 words, looking for quick, easy, Nico, Nico. That's probably what it was. If you listen to records, you definitely pick that up, but... 
it's gone, right? It's also gone. It's not there through the whole record. And you and you wouldn't think that of it now. You'd think of Kate LeBond. She's her own artist, right? She's uh, she's as unique as Bjork or unique as Kate Bush or St. Vincent or whoever. She's above and beyond all of those artists as well for me. <laughs> John, thank you ever so much for today, mate. Really appreciate you taking your time and, and inviting us up to uh, lovely Clangochlin in North Wales. And as we said earlier, that the Welsh Music Prize uh, shortlist is announced tomorrow. <laughs> this is weird, right? Yeah. Because uh, I know who's nominated uh, we're going to announce it tomorrow people listening is going to know already people are going to listen are going to know already and then uh, or may, maybe somebody's won yeah oh yeah actually um, yeah it depends on when this episode goes out <laughs> but did Kate LeVon get nominated for uh, for reward <laughs> she did yeah you know she's been nominated for every record well I think that she's put out whilst we've been around and she's never she's never no, won no uh, and, and I don't yeah see what happens or you'll know you'll know by the time you hear this. I don't know. I don't know. No, will you? Yeah. I'm confused by time and space. Um, Thanks for having me on. Make an old man very happy. (laughs) We couldn't really do Welsh music podcast without getting you on Mr. Welsh music alongside uh, Dave Owen. The legend that is Dave Owen. That's good. Yeah. Thank you very much for for having me on. Thank you. Once again, we'll close with a new track from an exciting new band. Uh, These guys are called Club Fuzz. They're from the University of South Wales, where they formed. Um, got a post-punk garage rock uh, band sort of sound, um, influenced by My Bloody Valentine, The Pixies, and Smashing Pumpkins. I know um, Adam Walton at uh, BBC Radio Wales is championing these guys, and this great tune is called Higher. 